0: Of invitation this morning will be number 310. Number 310 will be song to encourage any who may be present who needs to act upon the gracious invitation of our Lord, and uh, that will be after our lesson at the close of our lesson this morning. I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, we'll be getting there momentarily. We're going to be discussing the subject of unity. This morning, the importance of unity. Appreciate the songs that Brother Moore led, uh, having to do with unity and the importance of unity. Blessed be the tie that binds. We are joined together by the truth of God's word and the fellowship that we have with God. And one of the things that you have heard me say quite often, those, the members here, picture in your mind a triangle and God being at the top of that triangle. The closer we are to God, the closer we will be to each other. The further away from God that we are, in reality, the further away from each other we will be. And, of course, the goal is to be at one with God and at one with each other. So that's what we're going to be discussing this morning. Appreciate the presence of everyone. We do have visitors this morning. Thank you so much for being with us. Some of you are traveling through. So thankful that you stopped to be with us. You are an encouragement to us. We do appreciate that very, very much. And if we can be of assistance in any way, let us know. To define, uh, unity is something that the Bible talks quite a bit about. But one of the things that we hear quite often is the concept of unity in diversity. The Bible speaks of unity of the Spirit. The world speaks of unity in diversity. What is unity in diversity? We hear this quite often. Unity in diversity, and this is from Wikipedia. I know this is not official, but I did look it up in Merriam-Webster and a couple of other dictionaries. And Wikipedia actually has it condensed and I think has a very good explanation of what we're trying to talk about this morning. Unity in diversity is a concept of unity without, in, without uniformity and diversity without fragmentation. That shifts focus from unity based on a mere tolerance of physical, cultural, linguistic, social, religious, political, ideological, and or psychological differences towards a more complex unity based on an understanding that difference enriches human interactions. It has applications in many fields including ecology, cosmology, philosophy, religion, and politics. It's a broad concept. The idea, again, is unity among diverse concepts and beliefs and understandings and practices. It goes on, it says, Unity and diversity is used as a popular slogan or motto by a variety of religious and political groups as an expression of harmony and unity between dissimilar individuals or groups. The phrase is a deliberate oxymoron, the rhetorical combination of two anonyms, unitus Latin for unity, oneness, and ver- veritas, which is variety or variousness. When used in a political context, it is often used to advocate federalism and multiculturalism. Uh, so on Facebook this morning someone posted that today is Transgender Awareness Day. And it was actually posted on a group that I'm a member of, Churches of Christ Facebook page, which is really full of people who are antagonists towards the Bible. It is, uh, and I've mentioned this group many times, but uh, they posted on there, today is Transgenderism Appreciation Day. And it was calling for unity, even regarding things such as homosexuality and transgenderism. How can we be united with people who reject what the Bible, what God Himself teaches? And again, picture in your mind that triangle. The closer we are to God, the closer we will be to one another. One of the things that keeps us from God is sin. Sin separates us from God, Isaiah 59 verses 1 and 2. How can we unite with people who are willingly separated from God by their beliefs and by their actions? We can't be. Not biblically. We cannot be. A thing cannot be both and not be at the same time in regard to the same object, at the same time, in regard to the, in the same sense. In other words, a united circle, if you have parts of a united of a circle, let's say, as you see on the screen above, with different numbers, but yet they all make one circle. Each part may be different and distinct in its color or in its numeration, but yet is partaking within that circle. It is fitting within. Uh, Another great illustration is that of a puzzle. A puzzle that has many pieces, but yet each piece, although different, make up the whole by fitting together. Okay? To say that we are a united circle when we are a bunch of squares or stars or hexagons or triangles is not correct. It, is, it doesn't work. It doesn't fit. It's not accurate. It's not an accurate definition. So, trying to explain what I'm saying, let, let me put it this way. This is what most mean when they say unity and diversity. They believe that we are to be united while tolerating and even embracing false religions. Whether it's Hinduism, Islam, Buddhism, Judaism, Shintoism, and you just go down a whole list of pagan religions, Eastern religions. Most believe that you can, and we should be, united There's a fellow that I've communicated with recently. He believes that Christians and Muslims are worshiping the same God. No, they're not. No, we're not. It's very different. You know, I think in a practical way in this country, you can see that. And you can make an application here as far as our culture and society is concerned. What if... We had enough people in Congress who were Muslims that they passed Shahira law to be enforced throughout the country. What kind of unity do you think that is going to promote? Can we be united with that? Will we accept that? I hope not. I hope not. Islam and Christianity are very different. How can we be united? When we believe opposite things, it's impossible. Unity while tolerating and even embracing sinful behavior. People believe that we ought to be united while embracing homosexuality and, and, and transgenderism. That we should embrace the sins of others. Now listen, I believe with all my heart that we are to love the people, be compassionate towards the people help the people to overcome their sin, not to encourage them and facilitate them in engaging in their sin. Those are very different things. Unity while tolerating and even embracing sinful behavior is wrong. It's contrary to the will of God. Unity while tolerating and even embracing false doctrine, things that are contrary to the doctrine of Jesus Christ, the Bible says we can't do that. I'm going to show that to you from the Word of God. In Amos 3 and verse 3, the prophet says, Can two walk together unless they are agreed?" Of course, that is a rhetorical question. No, you cannot walk together with someone that you disagree with in harmony and in fellowship. You can't do it. The application is to God. Can you walk with God while you are disagreeing with God about what's good and what's bad, what's right and what's wrong? You can You cannot walk with God while disagreeing with God about those things. In 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, Whoever confesses his sin, he is faithful and just to forgive him of his sin. The word confess is an interesting term. It literally means to be in agreement with. If we confess our sins, if we are in agreement with God concerning our sin, and we turn away from that sin, and agree with God in what is right and good, God will forgive us of our sin. But we cannot walk with God in fellowship with Him while we continue in sin. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5, and following, God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we walk in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, cleanses us from all sin. But we must walk in the light. In 2 Corinthians 6, and verse 14, the Apostle Paul says, Do not be unequally yoked together with un." believers. The word unequally yoked has to do with two things that are not the same. You do not put two things that are not the same together. In the Old Testament, it was against the law, actually, to plow a field with an oxen and a donkey harnessed or yoked together. You can't do that. Of course, there's practical reasons for that. It doesn't work. You can't do that practically. The idea is you can't put unbelievers with believers and have them and expect them to get along. It's not going to happen. Because there are differences in values and in activities and work and beliefs. The believer is united with God. The unbeliever is not. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? You see, righteousness and lawlessness do not go together. Oil and water doesn't mix. Sin... And righteousness do not mix. And what communion has light with darkness? We can't walk in the light and have fellowship with God while we walk in sin. Well, we can't walk in the light and in sin at the same time. And what accord has Christ with Belial? Jesus Christ and Belial idolatry doesn't mix. Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? doesn't mix. And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Doesn't mix. All the Eastern religions, idolatry, doesn't mix with God. You can't put those things together. In faith and practice, unity and diversity does not work biblically. Cannot work biblically. For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. You get into chapter 7 and verse 1 we are to cleanse ourselves from all unholiness and do what is right. There are many who have a misconception as to, and just generally in view of the world and the way things are, they have misconceptions that lead them and and in fact promote their demands that we all accept this unity and diversity concept when it comes to matters of belief and practice. Such as, and, and I hear this all the time. People think that there is no such thing as absolute truth. We were, and we began actually this past week on the radio broadcast. a study on the book of Romans, which we're about to begin on Wednesday nights here in a couple of weeks. But well, we started talking about the book of Romans because some, we had a caller about a month ago that called in and wanted us to study the book of Romans on the air. I, yeah, that's exactly what I want to do. I'm excited about that. Well, the first broadcast we advertised that we're going to begin a study of the book of Romans, some guy on this Bible doctrine and Bible study page that I'm also a member of, wanted to know what makes me qualified to teach the book of Romans when nobody else can understand what the book of Romans says. Well... I don't know what qualifies me actually to teach the book of Romans any better than anybody else except the fact that I simply want to study the book of Romans and see what the Apostle Paul has to say. You know, take Paul's words, believe Paul's words, do what Paul says. Uh, Let Paul tell us what he means. That's what we're studying it for. Of course, he didn't like that answer. Uh, he thought that, uh, and he, he thinks that it's impossible to understand what the Bible teaches unless you have, and his view was, the Catholic lens. Now, finally I got to, I understood where he was coming from. You can't, according to Catholics, you can't understand what the Bible says at all unless you have the church's lens to look at the Scriptures through. And of course, even then, there's no such thing as absolute truth, even from the Catholic perspective. You know there, you know there has been in the past the efforts to uh, commune with Muslims, you know, to open the bridge or uh, build bridges with other religions and those kinds of things. There is no such thing as absolute truth. Truth is unknowable and unattainable. Even though Jesus said, "You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free." John eight twenty, uh, John eight thirty two and thirty three, Ephesians five sixteen through eighteen. We are to know the truth. Simply follow the man and not the plan. Follow the man and not the plan. Just as long as you love Jesus, as long as you follow Jesus. How can you follow Jesus without following what He says? You can't. Listen, my friend. This whole "the man, not the plan" concept is just made up out of thin air. It's not from the Bible. Jesus says, follow me. What does that mean? It means to follow his teaching. Jesus said, whoever will deny himself, take up his his cross and follow me. That's what we've got to do. And what does that mean? We follow his teaching. Jesus said, why call you me Lord, Lord, in John 6, 46? Why call you me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? You can If he's your Lord, you do what he says. If he's not your Lord, then it will be made evident by the fact you don't do what he says. We will be judged by the words of Jesus. And by the person of Jesus. You can't separate the person Jesus from his words. That doesn't work. And some have this concept, and and here is a... Okay, it makes sense on the surface. The Spirit gave a diversity of gifts to men, therefore diversity in faith and practice is acceptable. This is really a non-sequitur. The argument doesn't prove the point. Uh, The argument doesn't make sense because you're talking about two different things. The Spirit gave different, different gifts to men, but He did not give different faiths to men. He did not give different beliefs to men. He did not give different responsibilities and practices to one group and then give different things to another in regard to faith and practice. No, it's the same spirit. And every church was taught the same thing. Yes, they had different gifts in each church. There were the preachers, there were the elders, there were the teachers, there were were those who served and those who helped. You have different responsibilities within the congregation. A congregation is made up of different people with different abilities. But they were to all believe the same thing. They were all to teach the same thing. They were all to follow the same Lord. Not in different ways. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verses 4 through 26. And their efforts made the body one. Not a bunch of differing parts with division Within the body. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you go back to verse 10 of chapter 1. I beseech you, therefore, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same things, having no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. But it has been told told to me, my brethren, of you, of those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. How that some of you say that I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ, here's Paul's question, is Christ divided? The answer to that question is no, he's not. Neither should a church be divided. We are to believe, teach, and practice the same things. In John the 17th chapter, the prayer that Jesus offered... On behalf of his disciples. And even in extension to us. Jesus says in verse 17. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world. I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself. That that they also may be sanctified by the truth. You know what? Here's what the truth does. It sets the believer apart from the unbeliever. Apart from the world. The truth sets us aside from everybody else. The truth itself separates us. The truth sets us aside for God's purpose, for God's work. That's what the concept of sanctify means, to set apart for God's work, to be holy. We're different from the world. And that line of demarcation must always be present. If a Christian lives like the world, acts like the world, talks like the world, there is no difference between the Christian and the world. The truth sets us apart from the world. In verse 20, Jesus goes on, he says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for all those who will believe in me through their word. That is, our faith must be based upon the teachings of Jesus through his apostles. That they all may be one. Now here's the, here is the effect or the product of believing Jesus through the words of his disciples. We may be all one. That, you, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. We are to be united in the same sense. As the Father and the Son are united as far as our purpose and our belief and our understanding is concerned. We are to be one. As the Father and the Son's purpose was one, so should ours be one. That they also may be one in us. That the world may believe that you sent me. Listen. Unity in diversity, having different beliefs, division among Christendom is not a good thing. Division among those who profess faith in Christ, who claim to follow Christ, is something that turns people away from the Father, not brings people to the Father. That's what Jesus said. I didn't say that. Jesus said that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Unity is important to our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Our unity is something he prayed for. In verse 22 he says, In the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one. The word perfect has to do with wholeness and completeness that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Our unity is important to the Father, to the Son, and our unity is important to the world. They need to see that. Division repulses people. It turns people away from God. And it doesn't logically make sense when you talk about God as being holy. So Jesus' prayer is that we be one just as He and the Father are one. And there is something throughout this text, again, that ties us all together. And that is the truth. The truth is what unites. Whenever we differ from the truth, we have division. But it is the truth that unites. Again, verse 17. Sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is true. It is the word of God that should bind us all together. It is the believing of the truth that we are united. So with that in mind, Jesus again, that they all may be one as you and I are one, Jesus said. That they also may be one in us. There's a fellowship with the Father and the Son that's involved. That they may be one just as we are one in the same sense. That they may be made perfect in one, complete. That's the prayer of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We should never be fighting against the prayer of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We should never be praying or practicing or even promoting division. In the body of Christ. Just the opposite. We should be praying for. We should be practicing. And we should be promoting unity in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Unity based upon the truth of God's word. We are a diverse group. But what is it that ties us together? It is the truth. We in this very auditorium this morning come from a variety of different backgrounds. We come from different denominational backgrounds. We come from different cultural and political backgrounds. We come from different nations even, and nationalities. We're different people. But what is it that binds us all together? It is the truth of God's Word. It is coming together to seek the truth and to follow the truth. Our love for the truth is what binds us together. It is following the truth that really cements our bond. And that truth and that that bond is not only with God, each other but again it is with God the author of truth truth holds us together as we continue to follow the truth we will be united if we cease following the truth we will cease being united with God let's just suppose that we all cease being uh, that we all believe the same thing but it's not the truth And we are all united together upon something that's false. We may be united together, but we're not united with God. And that's a problem. We must first and foremost be united with God. And by holding to His will, the truth then everything, we will all be united together. Therefore, our emphasis must be to remain in harmony with the truth. Now, in Ephesians chapter 4, and verses 1 through 16, quickly, I want to just go through this text and just make some points, and the lesson will be yours. Paul says in Ephesians 4, and verse 1, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with longsuffering, for, with bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit, In the bond of peace, unity is something we should strive hard for, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's based upon our calling. Now, I've I've emphasized from Jesus' prayer in John 17 that, that, that the truth is what binds us together. That's very true. Here, the Apostle Paul says that we're to walk worthy of our calling. Well, what is this calling? This calling is the gospel of Jesus Christ that has been presented to the world, the teachings of Jesus Christ, which is to draw men out of the world to God. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that is the call. It is the truth that is the call. The gospel and the truth are synonymous terms, if you will. And it is by means of the same gospel that we are called out of the world to the same Lord. And Paul says in Galatians 1 and verse 6, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him who called you to the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. But there be some among you that would pervert the gospel of Christ. And whether we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than that which we've already preached, let him be accursed. Those are the words of the apostle Paul. It is the gospel that calls us out of the world and joins us to Christ. It is like a seed, and Jesus uses this analogy in Luke 8 and verse 11. He says, in the parable of the sower, the seed is the Word of God. And there are different reactions to the Word of God from different people. Some people reject it outright. Satan comes along and he takes that seed out of their heart so that they will not believe. Others, it's planted among rocks or stony soil where it's not able to take root. And thus, when trials and tribulations come, it withers and dies. It's not able to withstand those trials. Then you have the thorny ground, or, and the, where the weeds and everything grows. The seed falls there, and the weeds choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And it falls away, withers and dies. And so you've got different types of soil. The seed, though, is the same seed in every case. And then it falls on good ground and it brings forth abundance and fruit. But it's the seed, it's the Word of God that is planted in the heart. Listen, just like in nature, just like all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, when God created the world and He created things, He set forth the natural order that everything would produce after its own kind. Brethren, rabbits... Do not produce deer. Chickens do not produce dogs. Dogs do not produce... We know that. When you plant corn seed in the ground, you're not going to get turnip greens. You're going to get corn. Depending upon what kind of seed you sow in the ground, that's going to determine what kind of fruit you have. When you plant apple seeds, you're going to get an apple tree. You're not going to get a peach tree or a pear tree you're gonna get apples when you plant the truth in someone's heart when you plant the Word of God in someone's heart when you plant the gospel of Jesus Christ in someone's heart let me tell you what you are gonna get you're gonna get a Christian that's what you're gonna get you're not gonna get a bunch of different kinds of Christians if you plant the same seed you're gonna get a Christian when you plant the truth, that truth will produce a Christian. Nothing more, nothing less. The unity of the Spirit is dependent upon the call. So when, the, when we are called by the gospel, and we accept that call and follow that call, we will believe the same thing. We will practice the same thing. Paul then emphasizes the unity of our attitudes, lowliness of spirit, gentleness, long-suffering, and bearing with one another in love. Now, the emphasis is the attitudes of acceptance and, and the need to be patient with one another because we love each other. And all of those things must be there. Humility is the willingness to accept that I am wrong to seek the truth and always place our trust not trust—not in ourselves, not in one another, not in other men, but in God Himself, and follow Him, yield to Him. That's the concept of meekness, by the way, not spinelessness or weakness. Meekness is not allowing people to run over you. It is actually the strength that is under control and really it has the idea of submission to the will of God. And so lowliness and gentleness and long-suffering and bearing with one another, these are attitudes that must be present to stick together because here's the problem. Truth is what keeps us together. But sometimes we do do things that are wrong. And what we need to do is have low humility and meekness and long suffering with them. And it's kind of like oil in the machine that helps keep everything together and we can get them back as Galatians chapter 6. And verse 1 says those who are strong those who are strong restore those who fall away we do need these attitudes but the basis of our unity is not the attitudes this is just kind of the oil if you will the grease in the wheels that keeps things working what holds us together is what then paul says in verse 4 There is one body, one spirit, just as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all, through all, and in you all. One, 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 and one. Unity. Paul points out that there is one body. Not many. Many bodies now when we talk about one body we're talking clearly about the body of Christ right Ephesians 1 verses 22 and 23 where he is the head of the body Jesus is the head the body is his body that's made up of people individuals who do what he says that's what the body of Christ is the body of Christ is made up of believers who are the believers those who believe what the head says. Those who submit to what the head says. That's who the believers really are. The believers are the body. Or the church. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. Which is the church. In Ephesians 5 and verse 23. Jesus is the head of the church and savior of the body. The Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. Listen. Jesus Christ only has one body. True. Jesus only has one church. That also is true. That is true. That's what the Bible see, teaches. Jesus said in Mark sixteen, Matthew sixteen and sixteen, "I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it." Acts two forty-seven. The Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. There is one body, one church. Now when I say there is one church, I do not mean, I do, please do not mean. Let, think that I mean, there is only one denomination. I don't believe in denominations. I don't believe any denominations make up the body of Christ. Individual Christians make up the body of Christ. The saved make up the body of Christ. Listen, let me give you another pointer. Churches, local churches do not make up the body of Christ. Individual Christians make up the body of Christ. Individual Christians then join together in locations and they form local churches. Now a local church that is following Jesus Christ is truly a local church that belongs to Him. It is following Jesus Christ. You can go to Revelation chapters 2 and 3 and you find seven churches that are mentioned there. You know what? Four of them are in a lot of trouble. The Lord tells them if they do not repent, He will cut them off. They had to make some changes. Four of them were not following following Him like they should have. The church that follows Jesus, the local congregation that follows Jesus, is a congregation that belongs to Him. But Jesus only has one body. When we say one body, we're talking about all Christians everywhere, worldwide, past and present, who follow Jesus Christ. That's the body of Christ one spirit one source of truth he is the one revelator john 16:13 jesus promises his apostles he said that the holy spirit will come to them he will guide them into all truth he did that ephesians 3:3 3, 3 through 5 paul says that the things that he wrote were things that were given to him by the spirit And he wrote these things down so that when we read, we may understand his knowledge in the mystery of Christ. One spirit, one revelator, one hope. Salvation in heaven is our hope. That is what we are longing for. That is what we are shooting for. A lot of religions have different hopes. Some have a materialistic hope. Not a heavenly hope. Some people have a temporal hope that is present. Have your best life now. That's not my hope. One Lord. There is only one Lord. One Jesus. Listen, there are just as many bodies as there are lords. There is only one Lord, and that's Jesus Christ. Not Muhammad. No. Not any other human being. Just Jesus. That is the one Lord that we are to follow. There is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. Acts 4.12. One faith, one body of truth that is to be believed. One faith. One. Second Timothy 1.13 Timothy was to hold to the faith, to sound doctrine, and that doctrine is presented in the Scripture. Second Timothy three sixteen and following. In, chap- in fact, in chapter four and verse two, Paul tells Timothy to preach the word. Be instant. In season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But they will call to themselves, having itching ears, they will turn their ears from the truth into fables. But watch thou in all things, make full proof of thy ministry. One faith. Jude in verse 3, Contend earnestly for the faith. Brethren, there aren't hundreds of faiths. Certainly not thousands. There's not two. There's only one. That is the faith of Jesus Christ. That is the faith of the gospel. That is the truth of God's word. One baptism. Commanded by Jesus and the apostles. It was preached beginning in Acts chapter 2. It was preached throughout the book of Acts. It is baptism in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. It was preached in in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. It was preached in Samaria in Acts chapter 8 when Philip went there and preached to them. It was preached by Philip to the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8 beginning in verse 29. It was preached then in Acts chapter 10 to Cornelius and his household. They were commanded to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ in verses 47 and 48. And after in verse 43 it was told, to Cornelius, that it was through the name of Christ, that through the faith in the name of Christ, that they would receive the remission of their sins. And you see this throughout the book of Acts. Acts 10, Acts 16, Acts 18, Acts 19. This is the one baptism that was taught and preached of the Great Commission that was to be preached throughout the whole world to every creature under heaven. As Jesus himself said, He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. He that does not believe shall be condemned. The apostles taught this one baptism. It's taught throughout also the epistles in Romans 6, Colossians 2, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 1 Peter 3, 21. And one Father, one God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is in all, through all, and in all. Jesus Christ is the Lord The Holy Spirit is the revealer. The Father is the one who is over all. He lives through us and manifests Himself in us when we receive His truth. And then as you go on through the text, it emphasizes the different responsibilities and roles that we're to play and how we are to work together. But it's all, again, centered upon following the truth of God, following the faith of Jesus Christ. And what He gave, He gave gifts to men. And those gifts were to equip the church. In verse 11, And he himself gave to some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and some teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is accomplished through what these offices provided in the first century, through their miraculous gifts that they were given They produced the entirety of truth, the entire embodiment of truth. The truth was revealed. And the truth is what will make us free, John 8, 32. And as he goes on and says in verse 14, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love. May grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. Unity, flowing down from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the head, through his word to all of his body, which binds us all together. And as we, although we are different people with different abilities, by conforming our lives to the truth of God's word, we work together in harmony. And we bring about the desired result, and that is a body of believers who, who are working, effectively doing what we can, doing what, we're, what our share is, causing the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love, for the building up of the body. That is accomplished when we all take the truth seriously enough to do what it says, to comply with the teaching of the Lord's will. We are united in the same body of Christ in the unity of the faith. The source is Jesus the nature is the gifts that He provides, which provides com- a completed faith. And we now actually have the objective standard. And it's right here. This is the objective Word of God. And we can go to this book right here. And we can test everything, whether it's right or wrong, good or bad. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. We can know everything that God wants us to know. We can know everything that God wants us to do. We can test every doctrine, whether it is true or it is false. By what God has provided to us through those apostles and prophets in the first century that recorded for us the will of God. Now, with the same calling, the same attitude, the same doctrine, and the same head, we're united. What happens when you have a different calling and a different attitude? We are united. There is diversity in the unity, as we said. You go to John chapter 17, we're to be one, but we are different individuals. But yet we're to believe the same thing. Apostles' doctrine, although the different nationalities in Acts chapter 2, they all were to continue in the apostles' doctrine in fellowship and in breaking of bread. Acts 242. In faith, they had different gifts and matters of liberty, yes. Things that were released, the truth. Allows us to eat pork. Aren't you glad for that? But it's still something that's authorized by God's Word. The teaching and the practices that we are to engage in. The Gospel itself. We are male, female, bond, free. Jew, Gentiles. But we're all united in the same Gospel. Submitting to the same head. Following the same instructions. As long as we're following the instructions, we are one. But what happens when we don't? The church at Corinth was one body, yet they had differing gifts and abilities, and they were to use those gifts to the glory of God. But there were problems in Corinth. There were members of the church, remember in chapter 5, there was one man in particular that was committing incest. And what did Paul command the church there to do? Turn him over to Satan, that the flesh might be destroyed. When we get into 2 Corinthians, we find out that that man did indeed repent after they withdrew from him, after they turned him over to Satan. He repented, he came back, and Paul instructed them to receive him with love. But what if they had said, you know, Paul, I don't think that's a loving thing to do, to turn him over to Satan. I think that we ought to embrace him because we love him so much. Actually, that's what they were doing. And actually, that is what the Apostle Paul condemned them for. The church in Ephesus was united in one body, yet diverse in nationality and background, Ephesians 2.16. But yet in chapter 2, verses 1-7 through of Revelation, they had left their first love, and they they were demanded by the Lord to repent, or else He would remove them. Diversity in spirit is not allowed. Different callings, different attitudes, different doctrines, different heads and different bodies produce division. Contrary to the unity of the Spirit. Different groups, division, not unity, that's division. And that is contrary to the will of Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 10 through 12. Some say, well, doctrine isn't important. The only thing that matters is that we're sincere. The apostles' doctrine was to be continued in. We must obey the truth. And we could go on, you know, if a preacher says one thing and the Word of God says another, who's going to be right and who's going to be wrong? Everything that we believe and everything that we teach must be compared to what the Bible says. If we follow the Bible, if we follow God's Word, we will be united. Some say that, well, you know what, no one is to be scripturally baptized, or a a script, no one is a scriptural subject for baptism till he is already saved. This was uh, by J.G. Bow, page 36, 36 and 37, in his book, What Baptists Believe and Why They Believe It. How does that compare with what Jesus himself said? He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. Jesus does not say he that believes must already be saved and then he ought to be baptized. Jesus did not say that. We can compare that to what Paul said in Acts 22 and verse 16. Or what Peter said in Acts 2 and verse 38. What does the Bible say? Unity and diversity when it comes to matters of faith and practice, undermines the fundamental principles of truth itself. It's like saying truth really doesn't matter. The Bible really doesn't matter. In fact, I actually had a guy tell me that Friday. He actually told me that the Bible doesn't matter. And he professed to be a Christian. How sad. To reject the authority of Scripture... To reject the scriptural patterns for our faith and for our practices is to reject God Himself who gave the pattern, who gave His Word. The Bible demands unity. The Bible demands that we submit to Christ. The terms of salvation, to hear, to believe, to repent, to confess, to be baptized in Christ, to continue to follow Jesus Christ till we reach our home of glory. That is what the Scriptures teach. People can argue whether you have the correct interpretation. We can talk about interpretation, that's fine. But the real bottom line is not what I believe the Scriptures say. It's not what I teach the Scriptures say. It's what the Scriptures themselves teach. That's what really matters. When it comes to the doctrine that I believe... What I am to be identified as, as a Christian, the work that I do, the worship that I engage in, the the organization of the Lord's church, all these things are decided and determined by the Word of God. And God gives us those things. We're told whoever transgresses and abides not in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Brethren, does that sound like unity in diversity when it comes to matters of doctrine and practice? No, it doesn't. Unity by believing only what the Scriptures say. Unity by preaching and teaching only the things authorized by the Scriptures. United, united by staying within the boundaries of the Scripture. That's real unity as Christ prayed for, as Paul commanded in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10, as the Apostle Paul also instructed in Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 1 through 16. Is your desire to know the truth, to believe the truth, and to follow the truth? Is your desire really to lay aside everything that is contrary to the truth and adhere to the truth and allow the truth to take you wherever it leads you? Because, brethren, listen, the truth will take you to God. Error will take you away from Him. Superficial approaches to division will never solve the problem. We can say, well, that really doesn't matter. Well, that really doesn't matter. That practice really doesn't make any difference. We can do that all day long and pretend that the truth is not the truth. Pretend that what God says He really hasn't said. We can pretend it, it's not going to solve the problem. What we really have to do is turn our attention back to the Word of God, believe it, follow it, and teach it. That's it. And then we'll have God. He'll be our Father. And we'll be in Him, and we'll be united, as long as we follow the teachings of His Son, Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here this morning, you've never been baptized into Christ. Maybe that's what your need is this morning. Maybe you've wandered away from Him. You've turned your back on Jesus Christ. Maybe you've drifted away. Whatever your need is this morning. If you just need to confess your sin and pray as a child of God that God will forgive you, please let us do that. If you need to obey the gospel, won't you come while together we we stand?